0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation now with Dr. Jerry Buckner, host of Contending for the Faith. We're talking about a recent uptick in racist behavior that um, certainly came full front into the spotlight with the murder of George Floyd back over Memorial Day weekend and has really put the country now, in the middle of a pandemic, into a position of, of... real introspection I hope and and rethinking a lot of where we stand with each other and where we are for ourselves and you know Dr. Buckner before the break you were talking about this notion that some of this is sort of whipped up to to feed into white guilt and, and, I, and I don't know if while perhaps what Dan um, uh, from Chick-fil-A did symbolically may be meaningful I, I don't know at the end of the day if if something like that that might even borderline on publicity um, is going to have a long lasting impact, I I, I think that we need to differentiate between feeling guilty versus feeling convicted. Um, guilt is something that the enemy heaps upon us. Conviction is something that is caused by the Holy Spirit, prompting in our heart that there is something in sin that is separating us from god and our relationship with him and it would seem to me at the end of the day what's really at the core here is not to try to sort of feed into behavior that eases one sense of guilt but has no substance to it but rather conviction that leads to repentance that leads to a changed life would you agree
1: because that is the answer right there that's the answer and uh that we are challenging uh, the churches, challenging the communities, challenging the world. That you cannot find the answer in white guilt, black guilt, brown guilt, uh, yellow guilt. You cannot find the answer in the politics, the democratic uh, politics, republican politics, independent politics. You can't find the answer in even the issue of racism and lawlessness. You can't find the answer in dealing with uh, this color thing. The only way we're going to find the answer to our problems today is getting to the root, and that is dealing with the sin issue. When we look at lawlessness, when we look at racism, when we look at bigotry, when we look at this thing of uh, uh, any form of guilt that's other than being convicted of the Holy Spirit, we have to say that that's a false symptom problem, and that's not the answer. The answer is that we turn to Jesus, and the Scriptures let us know in Second Chronicles 7 and 14, even though that's Old Testament Scripture, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and notice, he says, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. What we have to do, Craig, in this day and age, I, I have two words, ministry, and then in the middle, of reconciliation. And when I say ministry of reconciliation, I'm not talking about a racial reconciliation. The Bible talks about, I believe it's in Second Corinthians 5, it talks about The ministry of reconciliation that comes in Jesus Christ. And when we really, when we really love God, we come to find Him in reconciliation, Jesus, and we really love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, that will evaporate and destroy and obliterate racism, lawlessness, and all the other things. That's why when you look back early in history, all of the when the revivals took place reformation and revival people were changed societies, communities, and everything and it broke out over in Europe and to the United States the only answer for our problems today is a reformation the first R, second R, revival, and we have to repent of our sins, turn to Jesus as the Savior and love him with everything we have and with, we love our neighbor we won't have to experience any any form of racism because we'll be treating people as we would want to treat ourselves.
0: Do you have any fear, Dr. Buckner, that in the current climate, if there is an overemphasis on on guilt that leads to people to attempt to do things that will help to erase the guilt, absent of doing things that are substantive, that changes hearts and minds and attitudes and institutions that brings about that parity, that brings about truly um, answering of that that mandate um, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That this period in time, that the tremendous pain that we've seen brought to the forefront since uh, Floyd's death, that that... A lot of this will perhaps be lost, and we'll find ourselves right where we were on the day prior to Memorial Day um, that we focus more on a sense of erasing the guilt as opposed to true repentance that 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 leads to a significant change of heart and therefore our society and culture.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, because Satan is massive. Oil. At being a counterfeiter. So what you just said answers uh, a lot of that, because he's in the business of counterfeiting the original Jesus Christ. And so what he does today is he uh, emphasizes and masters in violence. He emphasizes in being destructive. He emphasizes on the area of guilt and shame, so that people can feel deep inside that they're empowered from their guilt and their shame. And what Satan does is that he puts us deeper in the shame, deeper in the, the guilt, and deeper in the sin, because he's made us free. You know, so when we come to know him, we don't walk in shame. We don't walk in guilt other than being convicted by the Holy Spirit. And then when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, we let go and let God. That's the bottom line to it all. But Satan is a master in the area of counterfeiting everything that God wants us to do, even the area of dealing with exactly what you just said.
0: And and that's a challenge, I think, that we need to be particularly mindful of inside of the Church, because at the end of the day, let's face it, on the topic of reconciliation, um, we ought to... Be experts at it Uh, since our, our, our life is bound up in Christ and we've experienced what it's like to feel forgiveness and to experience reconciliation that leads to relationship on the vertical plane and yet it seems as if we oftentimes are the most challenged when it comes to demonstrating the sense of what it means to be reconciled and walk in fellowship on the horizontal plane. You you and I have talked about this before, and I think it bears repeating that at one point Dr. Martin Luther King made the observation that America was no more racially divided than she was at 11 o'clock Sunday morning. Now, I don't say that to suggest that we need to all rush out and, and invite our neighbors to come to church with us on Sunday because we're simply trying to reach a quota. I don't think it's about that at all. Uh, I I think this needs to be natural. I think it needs to be something that is born out of our relationship with Christ. And if perhaps we have a a challenge in being able to do that and find healing and peace relationally on on the vertical plane, then wouldn't that ultimately suggest that there's some shortcomings some defect something um, intrinsically out of place in our in our horizontal relationship vertical oh, yeah. vertical relationship rather
1: yeah absolutely and what we have done is uh, allowed uh, the enemy to not only counterfeit uh, the truth but uh, we've allowed him to uh, counterfeit uh, fear in our lives so you you're talking about the issue of guilt, and we're talking about the issue of guilt and shame and that sort of thing versus being convicted by the Holy Spirit. But I see so many churches today that are led by fear, and they are afraid to give an answer. First Peter 3 and 15 says, be ready to always give an answer. So uh, when we see the protesting, we see the violence, we see the rioting, we see all that going on. God has called upon us to be in the forefront as church leaders, rather than uh, hiding uh, in our homes. We need to be, uh, there's many ways that we can be a voice uh, through, uh, you know, technology and many things like that. But when you look around to you today, you say to yourself, where are the voices speaking publicly in terms of church leaders, the church, and, uh, our lethargy is going to cause us to get judged by god if we do not stand on the forefront of giving answers to the problem we're the only ones that have the true answers and why aren't we out there uh... doing it and making a difference
0: and we really i, I think what you're saying at the core we really need to lead by example and um you know, there are many ways in which even the church today, challenged by stay-at-home orders and shelter in place and six-feet distancing and all this, but regardless, there are many ways in which the church can and should take an active role in addressing these issues. And I think most importantly, it starts with ch- searching our own hearts. Um, you made that reference to Second Chronicles 7.14. Um, which is a passage that is specifically written to us when God says, If you, called by my name, will humble yourselves and pray, turn from your wicked ways and seek my face, wow, that that really suggests that there's work that God is expecting we as the church to do, that we can take the necessary steps to right our relationship with him on the horizontal plane that the, we then might be empowered to be able to address the shortcomings and sin and failures of our relationships upon the vertical plane and then live out that that sense of not guilt but but repentance that comes from conviction and then that repenting that turning from our wicked ways so that now we can begin to build New life, just as we built a new relationship with God, build new relationships with people on the vertical plane, so that at the end of the day, as the scripture reminds us, they will know us by our love.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's called upon us to be the salt of the earth, which is to be a preservative. The world is decaying, and he's called upon us to be the light of the world and uh, not to put it under a bushel. And so, if we uh, do not do what God calls us to do, um, the Bible is very clear that judgment begins in the house of God. And every society, historically, that has gone down has always started with the Church going down first. When a Church is not being that leading example, then the church goes down, and then the society goes down. That's why God said uh, to uh, Abraham way back in his day that, you know, I always uh, give people a, a test question, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And most time people say, well, because of the homosexuality. I said, no, because he couldn't even find ten righteous people to preserve it. God said, if you get that ten righteous people, I'll preserve it. God wants to preserve our decaying, lost world. But if the church is undercover agents rather and secret agents rather than being change agents, then uh, we open up the door for the judgment to come upon us. And I believe with this coronavirus, God has put us, allowed us to be right in the home, uh, out of the churches, many of the churches, so that we can get things right with uh, not only him, to get things right with our marriages, children, uh, and uh, the church, so that when we get back in a building, revival can happen, reformation and revival can happen.
0: Amen. And, and, you know, I want to underscore something in in part, because I don't want to come in to work tomorrow and find 500 emails waiting for me saying, Craig, you went on the air and said that, you know, we we shouldn't be inviting um, minorities to church. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, really dovetailing off of what you just mentioned there, Dr. Buckner, about the church as change agents, that sometimes we think we're almost like window dressers. You know, back in the days, if you're old enough to remember, Macy's used to decorate the windows in the downtown stores at Christmas time and various holidays, and they had people who had specific jobs that were called window dressers, and they went in and they set up all the displays in the various store windows. Well, the point here is that you can change the display in the window, but if what's behind it, if what's in the store, if what's in the the center, in the core is the same, then all you've really done is change the outward appearance. Real change hasn't taken place. So what I'm suggesting is this isn't some kind of a contest to go out and pretend as if if you invite certain minority categories to show up to church on Sunday and now you can count well we've got you know 15 agents three Italians um, eight black people and and five Hungarians we, we've done it no to be true change agents means that it has to come from the heart and if that sense of sharing the good news living out the gospel and and seeing ourselves as agents of change that endeavor to be fulfillers of that which God has said to us that we might be lovers of him first and foremost and then love our neighbors as ourselves. And we truly engage in this process of not placating our self-guilt and self-loathing but rather recognize our sin nature truly confront it, respond to the sense of conviction by repenting, changing our heart, changing our attitudes, and then allowing God to equip us to change the world around us, then I think, Dr. Buckner, we can really see some good to come out of all the pain that we've seen brought to the surface over the last several weeks.
1: Oh, yeah. You're, you're really not the home run with that, Craig, uh, because... You went back to what I had said earlier, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, that if they turn from their wicked ways. God says, if we do that, starts with the heart, because Jeremiah says in Jeremiah seventeen and nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then it Jesus said in the gospels <clears throat> that out of the heart proceedeth evil. Thoughts and adultery and thefts and murder. So it's a hard problem. And uh, if we uh, turn from our wicked ways and confess our sins and repent of our sins, the promise that God says that He will heal our land. Now, we cannot improve upon that. Uh, people get together and they have these race relationships and they have these meetings about how to improve social justice and and how to deal with all of these external symptoms. No, we gotta get to the root in order to bear fruit. And John the Baptist said this when it comes to repentance. He says he didn't just say the Greek word Montanoie, which is a military word meaning about face, turn from something to something, but he said, bring forth the Fruit of repentance. It's got to be something that we not just talk it, but we walk it, and we got to see evidence flowing. And if we do do that as uh, individuals and as churches, then Reformation always happens, because we're turning back to the Word of God, we're turning back to Jesus, and we're confessing our sins, and then God says, when we turn from our wicked ways, He will heal the land. So we're trying to kill the land by Black Lives Matter, by dealing with uh, this issue of with guilt and all of those things, and we're trying to fix it by thinking that we can solve the problem by burning down buildings and burning down businesses and burning down churches. No, we just, make the, we just elevate the sin in our lives, that causes us to ele- to be alienated from God and further from our fellow man. And what comes out of that is wicked hearts being manifested in all different ways. So our message, I have pastors call me all the time, and I had pastor the other day call me. Pastors call me all the time. And they say, we love your great mind and your analysis and how you break down things. And I tell them, look, I have no solution to give you other than you as ministers and leaders dealing with your own issues dealing with the issues of your churches and the sins and the people repenting of those sins and then getting committed to discipleship and evangelism because if we the Bible says charity begins in the home. If we get our homes right, that's why God has put, allowed us to be back in the home. If we get our homes right, then our churches will be right. We've got to get our lives right, then our homes will be right, then the church will be right, and then the society will be right. But if we don't do those things, and we don't do the basic things God calls us to do, then our land can never be healed. What's going to happen to the land It's going to be polluted, And people, as it says in the Old Testament, are going to continue to do what is right in their own eyes.
0: Dr. Jerry Buckner, speaker, of course, on Contending for the Faith, broadcast Saturday evenings at 7 p.m. And he, of course, is also the senior pastor at Tiburon Christian Fellowship. Dr. Buckner, as always, we appreciate the time. 616, let's get caught up on some traffic for you right now as we head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let me read something to you. Take very close attention, if you would, please. Class, in session. Is that loud enough? There you go. The rapid growth of the world's population over the last 100 years results from a difference between the rate of birth and the rate of death. The human population will increase by one billion people in the next decade. This is like adding the whole population of China to the world's population. The growth in human population around the world affects all people through its impact on the economy and environment. The current rate of population growth is now a significant burden to human well-being. Understanding the factors which affect population growth patterns can help us plan for the future. This unit consists of core knowledge about the causes and consequences of overpopulation, lesson plans, teacher resources, student reading list, and a list of speakers. Although this unit is primarily intended for students in grades 5 through 8, teachers in both elementary and high school can use this unit to explore key ideas and concepts about the population explosion. Close quote. Now that is a foreword from a teacher's instruction handbook in use in American public schools today. What of this matter of modern-day overpopulation? Is it fact, or is it largely fiction? And how much of the new green is actually just the old red repackaged? With some answers, we're joined now by Stephen Mosher. He is president of the Population Research Institute, a nonprofit research group whose goals are to expose the myth of overpopulation, to expose human rights abuses committed in population control programs, and to make the case that people are the world's greatest resource. Stephen, a delight to have you on the program.
2: No, Thanks for having me.
0: Let's talk first about some of this agenda. You heard what I had to read from the forward of this uh, teacher's handbook, which sounds like the whole notion of overpopulation, its impact on the globe, and sustainability is sort of a fait accompli. And so let's begin teaching our kids these lessons at a very early age. What say ye?
2: Well, I say that it sounds like it was written by my former colleague at Stanford University, uh, not Professor Paul Ehrlich, in 1968. And, uh, of course, It sounds as if whoever wrote it hadn't learned anything else in the meantime, because it is wrong, wrong, wrong. It is wrong that the world's population is going to add a billion people in the next few years. Population growth rates are slowing down. More than half the countries of the world are now having too few people, not too many. Uh, And the rest of the world, China's one-child policy, India's two-child policy, is rapidly following suit. And the idea we should reduce the number of people on the planet to make ourselves better off is total nonsense because we need more creative human intelligences at work, not fewer. And if you want to visit the future of depopulation, go to Japan today, where they are desperately trying to get out of the demographic recession that they've been in for 25 years. What is a demographic recession? It's where you're having too few children to maintain the current population to too few young people coming into the workforce, buying homes and cars, starting new businesses. Japan has been in recession since 1990, and it's a result of the fact that they're only averaging 1.3 children per couple, which is a recipe for uh, demographic disaster. And in fact,
0: aren't we even seeing the same effect in many parts of Europe, that in fact there are some countries Absolutely. like France, for example, that are that are quote-unquote maintaining only because of new immigration?
2: Well, absolutely. Europe, really. Uh, the European countries, uh, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, uh, those peoples better decide who they want to give their countries to because they obviously don't want it enough to populate it themselves. They're having the Germans, the French, the Italians, the Spaniards are having about 1.2, 1.3 children per couple. Again, like Japan, declining in population were it not for immigration, um, And they have to have immigration. Of course, most of the immigration into those European countries comes from North Africa and the Middle East and brings with it other problems.
0: The one big buzzword that seems to tie into most of these arguments, whether it's an argument to try and reduce the population or address um, CO emissions, things of this sort, is the notion of sustainability, meaning uh, to what degree is the planet capable of not only meeting the needs of those of us that call this place home, but, but also as we add more people to the population, <laughs> pardon me, um, how much of an impact will each of those individuals have on the carbon footprint, things of this sort? This this notion of sustainability, just how realistic is it to the argument?
2: Well, you know, uh, sustainability is really, in, in eco-speak, a synonym for limits. And so when we talk about sustainable growth, when we hear the phrase sustainable growth, what they're really talking about is limiting economic growth. When we hear the word the phrase sustainable population, we're really talking about limiting population or population control, because the idea that you can dictate how many people can live on the planet at a certain standard of living is complete nonsense. I mean, look, I'm an anthropologist. Uh, I was the first American social scientist in China back in 1979 when the Chinese were still relatively poor, and when the world, led by Paul Ehrlich, led by the the, the uh, The radical environmental movement said China has too many people. If it is to develop, it must embark upon a one-child policy. Well, that's what they've done. They've killed off 400 million people over the last 35 years. And now they're facing an economic crisis because they have a nationwide labor shortage. They have the fastest aging population in human history. They're talking now about abandoning the one-child policy. I don't think they're going to do it in total. They'll go to a two-child policy. But they have set in train so many problems uh, for themselves over the long run that China's long-term economic prospects are now less rosy than India's because the Indians are still having a little over two children, whereas the Chinese are averaging slightly over one. They've compromised their future. They've compromised economic development. However well they're doing now, they're going to fall into a demographic trap that they laid for themselves 35 years ago, and there appears now to be no way out.
0: What are the counterargument to your points that says we need, Stephen, to keep in mind the planet's ability or inability in this argument to provide enough food, enough portable water, enough of the basic resources necessary to sustain human life. And if we continue at this pace, the fact of the matter is we can't plant gardens fast enough or farm fast enough and be able to produce enough water to meet the needs of a growing population.
2: Okay, well, here here, here are two arguments uh, that you've neatly encapsulated. One is that we're running out of food, and one is that we're running out of water. And the argument we're running out of food was rebutted, uh... about ten years ago by the food and Agricultural organization which is part of the u.n system by the way so these are not uh, these are not conservative people making these predictions the food and agriculture organization said that with current ag- agricultural technology we could now feed between twelve to fourteen billion people on the planet well you know and i know there are only a few more than seven billion people on the planet now uh, people should also know that the world's population is never going to double again. We're never going to get to 12 billion or 14 billion. So the food problem, yeah, we have a problem distributing food to some poor people in poor countries. There's still hunger in the world. I don't deny that. But there is no global food shortage, nor will there ever be. And as far as water is concerned, my goodness, 70% of the planet's surface is covered by water to an average depth of 6,000 feet. So there's plenty of H2O. Now, we may have to desalinate it. Uh, and they do that quite well in some Middle Eastern countries. We may have to conserve it. We may have to build more dams and, and build canals. Uh, but we don't have a global water shortage either. And as far as the carrying capacity of the world, you know, you get, if you tell me what level of technology we're talking about, I can tell you what the carrying capacity of the world is. I can tell you that as an anthropologist, when we were back in the days of hunting and gathering, when we had no settled agriculture, and we were basically dependent on what we could stalk and kill, hunting, and what we could find grubbing on the earth by, by, uh, by gathering, we could survive in a temperate zone at about a population density of two people per square mile. With settled agriculture, we raised that to 100 people per square mile, then to 1,000 with irrigation uh, in some of the best uh, irrigated uh, rice paddy areas in South China, where I lived for a couple of years. You had two and three thousand people per square per square mile, uh, but then we get to industry, we get to industrialization, and then we have the communications, uh, the internet revolution, and with each advance in technology, we're able to support more people. Now, if there were no more technological advances, if no more scientific advances were made, if no more Nobel prizes in 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 physics and chemistry were were handed out, and and our technolo- technological advance stopped. Then that would put a limit uh, eventually on the number of people that we could have on the planet. But I don't see any reason to believe that man is going to begin checking his intelligences at the door and not make any more advances in technology. Well, in
0: fact, ironically, about 100 years ago, there was a bill that was created that was under discussion, and I forget whether it was the Senate or the House, but one one side of of Congress or the other, uh, that essentially was a proposal to shut down the U.S. Patent Office arguing that post the invention of the light bulb, the Victrola, things of this sort, that everything that possibly could be invented had been been invented, and therefore there was no need for a U.S. patent office. I I wonder what Steve Jobs would have thought if he'd (laughs) called Washington and said, sorry, that iPhone, iPad uh, thing you're thinking of, nah, we don't need that.
2: (laughs) You, You can't have that idea because we've decided you won't. Um, yeah, that's the only way to stop human progress is by having the government intervene and force people to stop being creative, to force them to stop using their intelligence to solve problems uh, that that we cause sometimes by our numbers. I mean, nobody would have liked to have lived in a city in the Middle Ages because they didn't have, uh, you know, running water. They didn't have a way of disposing of their sewage but we invented ways to solve that problem which was caused by large numbers of human beings living in a small area and i'm convinced that any problem that's caused by our numbers can be solved by those same people um using you putting their intelligence to work i who would have thought that uh, 50 years ago that we would be taking sand from the beach and taking the silica from it and making it into silicon chips that make it possible for us to talk to uh, you know, on on, on on the phone, across the world, on the Internet, around the world, in, in fractions of a second. Um, again, a resource we didn't know existed 50 years ago is now making it very easy for us to communicate cheaply around the world. And, I mean, more people in Africa have cell phones now than have running water.
0: Isn't that amazing? Let's pause on that point. Stephen Mosher is with us today, president of Population Research Institute. We're trying to sort of figure through many of these arguments, arguments, quite frankly, that are taught as absolute fact in public schools today, as I suggested just a few moments ago. The big question is, as we yes, I have an understanding about uh, caring for the environment, and, and nothing here in today 's conversation should be suggestive of the idea that we need to uh, uh, not care for the environment or not live and act responsibly in in caring and in providing the stewardship over our planet. but that said, how much of these proposals related to caring for the environment or dealing with the quote unquote population? really get down to a core issue of not sustainability, but rather the attempt by some elite to manage and control the lives of others. We'll riddle that one as well, as our conversation with Stephen Mosher from Population Research Institute continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Here is a big part of the, well, the kind word is inconsistency. The more accurate word is hypocrisy of so much of the Green Movement that it, that it seems to, to separate the leaders from the followers. And ironically, it very much mirrors uh, many of the ideals of communism. And at the end of the day, communism is a theory that essentially has a small group at the top with centralized power over everybody else. They're suggesting in many ways, I think, the same thing when it comes to going green. Witness, for example, one of the biggest hypocrites in this arena, none other than Al Gore himself, who at the same time that he was busy producing a movie for which he won an award, and I still haven't figured that part out yet, um, and uh, promoting the the inconvenient truth, it turned out that the bigger, more inconvenient truth for Al Gore it was that while he's telling you to reduce the size of your footprint or risk the annihilation of our planet, Al Gore had a mansion in Tennessee whose electric and heating bill was $30,000 a year. That is 20 times the national average. Now, albeit his home was also four times larger than the average house size, but regardless, it shows the degree to which many of those that promote this green notion are really at the core hypocrites either making money off of all of this, as Al Gore has, to some obscene sums, or simply trying to centralize power. What of that? Is the new green, the old red? Are there vestiges of the ideals of communism lurking behind a lot of this? It sure, to me, Stephen Mosher seems to be the case.
2: I, I think that the, 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 same, the same idea of a, of a, of a tiny elite, uh, cognoscenti, people who know better than we do, how our lives should be run and what we should eat and what we should drink and how much energy we should use and what kind of homes we live in and what kind of cars we drive and how many square feet we should be allotted in living space, for example, and whether or not we should be allowed to travel um, wherever we want, whenever we want, whether or not we should have to wear a kind of like, like an energy equivalent of a Fitbit, a little watch that would monitor our energy usage and report us to government authorities if we use too much. Uh, you know, that may sound like the stuff of uh, a science fiction horror novel, but, uh, just today I heard the Environmental Protection Agency is getting prepared to monitor how many showers and, and how long our showers are when we travel, uh, and stay in hotels. That the hotels will have a little monitoring devices to report to government authorities, a central data collection station, about how much water we're, we're using when we're on the road. So, uh, the sort of idea that, uh, that, that a small group of people who are who are highly educated can better run our lives than we ourselves is the classic, the classic totalitarian mistake. Uh, and it's a mistake because no government bureaucrat, however well-educated, can ever make the right decisions for you and your family or me and my family because they simply don't know our individual circumstances. And the effort to do it, to take control of our families and to take control of our lives, would result in a massive, massive loss of freedom
0: why does it seem as if, particularly post the uh, the Big Earth Summit down in Rio in the early 90s, why does it seem as if there is a pretty inconsistent application of, of much of this movement in, in forcing compliance with green standards, r- lower emissions, things of that sort? And I ask that question because here, California, as you know, you lived here, Stephen, we have air resources boards. They tell us at wintertime, don't burn a fire in your fireplace because it's going to destroy the air. We have summer gas gas versus winter gas. We have all of these restrictions and controls. They've even promoted the notion that both statewide as well as nationally that we ought to start paying taxes based on the amount of mileage that we drive every year. I mean, on and on the list, the draconian list of controls goes. And yet, as much as I see this going on in a country like the United States, where we do make efforts, there are emission standards, and we do try to, to, I think in some reasonable ways, uh, control uh, pollution emissions from industry, from private individuals etc., etc., and yet I have traveled with some frequency to countries like India, like China on multiple occasions, Uh the former Soviet Union on multiple occasions. And to this day, they continue to be some of the most outlandish, grossest polluters I have ever seen. People forget that in the 2007 Olympics, Beijing actually decreed a moratorium and shut down all heavy medium and light-duty manufacturing in about a 200-mile radius around the capital of Beijing where the games were being held for... 20 days prior to the Olympics and 10 days after the Olympics closed, I guess figuring some folks might stay and linger as Uh tourists and things of that sort, to simply give the impression that things were better. Of course, once all the visiting athletes and the tourists went back home, China went back to its gross polluting. Why does this debate, particularly on the global scene, never come back and say, wait a minute, the United States is being asked to pony up, We're being asked to reduce. We have a population that's less than a third the size of China, a third the size of India, under certainly if not competitive with Russia, and yet it doesn't seem as if they have to play by the rules only us. Why is that?
2: Well, one word, money. We have all the money because this is not not just about cleaning up the air and cleaning up the planet. You can do that with local laws that are enforced uh, reasonably, on polluters which of course we all think ought to be done the trouble in Russia and the trouble in China and to some extent in India is that if you own a polluting factory it's cheaper for you to pay off a local official to turn the blind eye to your pollution than to install the scrubbing equipment on your smokestacks that would prevent it from reaching the atmosphere and so that's what you do in China if you have a factory that, that uh, is, is giving off uh, hydrogen sulfide or something uh, that irritates people that potentially is car- uh, carcin- uh, carcinogen, uh, you simply uh, go pay off the local official uh, responsible and he will look the other way. Uh, in the United States, that kind of bribery gets you arrested and thrown in jail. So there isn't the kind of free press. In Russia and, and China and to some extent in India that allows ordinary people to band together and protest and take their pe- petition the government for redress. Uh, there isn't a Bill of Rights in China, for example. And if, and if local villagers go unmasked to protest a polluting factory, they will often be met with deadly force, uh, from riot police who are, of course, working for the government, not for the people. And who are there under orders from the local police chief, who too has been paid off to protect the factory, even as it is polluting against the interests of the villagers, even though they are dying from lung cancer. So that's the kind of corruption you find elsewhere in the world. But the United States and Europe have the money. And this is at base a giant wealth transfer scheme, because there's nothing that the oligarchs in poor countries, the dictators, the tyrants in Africa, Asia, Latin America would like better than to have the United States and Europe in some sort of spasm of guilt transfer a trillion dollars into their Swiss bank accounts on the on the uh, grounds that, yes, we, uh, we polluted and now we're, we're paying back the people of the world for the pollution we caused. Uh, that's what this is about. It's about transferring wealth from countries that produce goods and services to countries that don't produce very much in the way of goods and services and are therefore poor.
0: Hmm. Redistribution of wealth. Why does that sound like a basic concept that was promoted by Marxism and Leninism?
2: It does have a very familiar ring to it for those of us who grew up in the last last century. I lived in Asia for 10 years. I lived in China for several years. And China has uh, the worst pollution in the world, I believe, by far. You know, they, they did have to shut down the factories before the Beijing Olympics because they wanted they wanted the people visiting Beijing to be able to see the sun. Well, <laughs> this is most true. Most of the time, most of the time when you go to Beijing these days, unless it's a windy winter day, you cannot see the sun because the sun is obscured by black clouds, and people wear those gauze masks over their face not because they have a cold, but because they're trying to prevent at least some of that particulate matter that soot. Uh, and the sulfur and, and the other uh, minerals from entering their lungs and, and, and making them sick.
0: Stephen, we sure appreciate the education tonight. I would imagine there are a lot of resources available for listeners on your website.
2: We've been working on these issues for 20 years. The website is pump.org, pop.org, P-O-P.org.
0: Well, great. Well, I again appreciate your time. Good to have a former Californians on the program and uh, keep up the good work. Stephen Mosher, president of the Population Research Institute. Details again on the web at pop, that's P-O-P dot O-R-G, pop dot O-R-G. Our thanks to Stephen Mosher for being with us tonight. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the lifeline podcast simply log on to kfax.com that's kfax.com for the lifeline podcast our producer is wanda sanchez i'm craig roberts till next time round, remember just don't keep the faith get out there and share it and make it a great evening so long
1: opinions expressed in the preceding
0: program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership staff or management of kfax Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.